that good? Yes. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you abide in us, even though many times we aren't abiding in you. And we are, uh, we are people that are speaking a lot and we aren't hearing very well. So Lord, this morning uh, we pray for a couple of things. We pray that as I speak, you would allow me to hear what you are saying through your word and you would allow uh, your hearers to hear it as well, Lord. We want to hear uh, the truth and the grace of your scripture this morning, Lord. We want it to impact our hearts. We know that everything that happens with our actions, everything that comes from our hands is a work that is first produced in our hearts. So Lord, we ask that you would realign them as we read your word today, as we learn a little bit more about what prayer is and what you intended it to be in our life. The model you gave us for prayer, as well as the motivation that you have given us to pray. Lord, I pray that those things would become more evident uh, to us. I pray that they would become more practiced in our personal life. I pray that it would be more practiced in our church. We want to be a praying church. This is not something that we want to take lightly, but we know that you hear the prayers of your people, and many times you act out of those prayers. So we want to consider that always. We want to grow in that, Lord. So give us the ability and the strength and the desire and the discipline to do this as we look into this really, really important, important thing for us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, we all said, amen. All right, well, go ahead and grab your Bible. Turn to Matthew 6. If you have a device, uh, you can click on the ESV version. That's what we read through and use here at Substance, if that's all good with you. Matthew 6. Now, Melissa and I, one of the things that we always notice when we, uh, we, go to, uh, we go to restaurants and we'll be sitting there and we do a lot of people watching when we're at restaurants and one of the things that we typically notice is you'll see the couple over in the corner that's sitting there for an hour and they're just eating and they're literally not saying a word like the whole time. And we're just always mildly fascinated by that at, at the same time we're sad about that, um, that they could just be sitting there but not engaging. And it's interesting when we, when we get into this passage today and we think about our relationship with God, how much it can be like that. How we're in his presence, but we're not actually engaging with him. I mean, can you imagine having a meeting with Bill Gates after he willed you half of his fortune and you just sat there and didn't say anything to him? I mean, what would people say? I mean, they'd say, don't you realize what this guy has just given you? I mean, you need to open that trap. You need to say something to Billy Boy about what he just gave you. And I think that's how many of us treat prayer. We treat prayer as something that we're dismissive of, that we're pulled back from, that we're afraid to engage in, that we have no desire or interest in engaging in whatsoever. So this morning what our aim is, is that we're going to unpack how Jesus told us how to pray. Now, if you hang around me and my wife, which some of you do, some of you don't, what you'll find typically in the month of October, if you spend time with us, that sounds like an invitation, so if you want to hang out with us, you're going to hear me say this particular thing all the time, and it actually drives my lady here like up the wall. I always am constantly saying, oh, I don't want to miss it. 
I don't want to miss it. Like I'm looking at the trees, I'm seeing the leaves turn, and all I say is I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss one leaf is what I'm always saying. I don't want to miss the depth and the richness of the season because I always feel like there's all this stuff going on and I wake up in the morning and then it's nighttime and I missed it. And I don't want to miss the depth of the season. And at the same time, I, I don't want to miss the depth and the richness of what Jesus has to say as we go through the Sermon on the Mount series, as he calls out our religious practices. Like we looked at last week, we looked at giving. This morning we're going to look at prayer and fasting. And there's a sense where, remember, Jesus called his disciples up to a mountain to listen to what he had to say to them. And we're doing the same thing. We're sitting here like his disciples. We're listening to what he has to say, except this well, this isn't a mountain and I'm not Jesus, so the parallels can only go so far with that. But it's for our joy like it was for their joy that he's instructing them and he's instructing us through this. I remember a few weeks ago we learned that Jesus came onto the scene saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what he does is he amasses just this large group of people as he's getting popular, as this message that he has is somehow gaining ground in people's hearts. And they end up following him up a mountain where he gathers everybody together, his disciples, his followers, and he instructs them how to live out their new identity as his followers. And what we've learned is that Jesus requires something of people who say, I now follow you. He requires something of people that have now been saved by him. He requires righteous living that reflects the inward change that's happened to us since we've become repenters. Now, what I love, if you ever met Dave Durlin, he's one of our elders. He's in Romania right now. And what they do over in Romania to distinguish the people who truly know Jesus from everybody else is they call them repenters. That's the word that they have for them. That's the descriptive term that they use for them. They're repenters. We're repenters. If you put your faith in Christ, you're a repenter. If Jesus has saved you, you're a repenter because the thing that had to precede that is repentance, right? So keeping the law, as we learned, or the Ten Commandments, it takes on a new light for us as repenters. It's not good enough to say, I've never murdered anybody, so I'm innocent. Because Jesus said a couple weeks ago when we were going through this, if you've ever been angry with your brother... You've already murdered him in your heart, and it makes you equally as guilty. So he just levels out the field for us. And what he's saying is that people who follow me, people who follow Christ, aren't people who merely practice religion. They're people who practice the righteousness that they've received from Jesus. And so as we've been going through this series, last week he warned us, he's been doing a lot of warning in this. Because Jesus loves us, he warns us against things. So part of biblical theology, part of good preaching, part of receiving what God has to say through the word is that he also warns us about things. He says beware because there's traps and there's things that are trying to steal from us and what we know about God and how we live out the Christian life. So he's been warning us about religious hypocrisy. He says be careful when you practice righteousness. Because our tendency is to receive praise from others rather than just to please God. We kind of like that affirmation that we get from others. And we've seen a little bit of that, haven't we? I mean, if you've lived a few years, 
you've seen and witnessed a little religious hypocrisy in your life, whether it's dudes on TV, whether it's pastors that you've seen have massive moral failures or people that were just involved in grievous sins for years and all of a sudden it comes to light, they're exposed, and you go, oh, they were such hypocrites. Maybe you've had friends in churches that you've been a part of that just double-crossed you, that betrayed you, that weren't what you thought they were or who they said they were. And you go, that was hypocrisy. You were lying to me. You were acting. And then we look in the mirror and we go, oh, well, I'm kind of one of those sometimes too because it's so subtle. Religious hypocrisy is so subtle for us. We look at big things. We look at big falls that people take and we go, them. And what Jesus is trying to illustrate is that these things are so subtle because they start and they are formed in the heart and they start to bubble over in our lives in a way that sometimes we don't even see. And that's part of how we would define hypocrisy, is that before we know it, we're becoming actors, we're acting, we're, our hearts are really, really leaning towards what we're going to receive from other people, right? So we want that acclaim, we want that applause, we want the hand claps. And Jesus is telling us, if that is the only thing you're going after, it will be the only thing that you receive in the end. John Calvin, the, the theologian, said this line, he said, the gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. He said, it cannot be grasped by reason and memory only, but it is fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates to the inner recesses of the heart. So do you see what he's driving at here? It's not just a doctrine of the tongue. We don't just say like, Jesus, and we live it out. It's something we're living out. So this week, what Jesus is going to do for us as we look into Matthew 6 is he applies this to prayer and fasting. And our focus this morning will be uh, primarily on prayer, both the model Jesus gives and our motivation for doing it. Because at the end of the day, here's the charge. We have to be a praying church. We have to be a church that prays. Because it is what God gave us for us to live out the power of his salvation in our lives. And that is the method that he's given us to do that. Tim Keller says this about prayer. It's a long quote. Hang with me. Prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. He said it is also the main way we experience deep change and the reordering of our loves. It's a good line. He says this, prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. It is the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life, is what TK says right there. Let me back it up with R.C. Sproul. This is what he said about prayer. We are getting to the word. Sproul said this, One might pray and not be a Christian, bless you, but one cannot be a Christian and not pray. I mean, man, that's pretty, that's pretty decisive right there. One might pray and not be a Christian, but one cannot be a Christian and not pray. 
Well, we're going to unpack some of the implications of that. So let's pick up Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. It says this. This is God's word. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows that your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's stop right there for now. So what Jesus is saying, it's kind of a similar theme to what we locked into last year in the sense that he's talking about religious hypocrisy. And so he just comes right in and he's not mincing his words. He's saying, don't pray like religious hypocrites who only do it for applause. Because hand clapping will be the only affirmation that you receive. And so what he's advocating here is praying in secret, right? This doesn't mean that we don't pray in public. We just prayed in public like four times this morning. So are we disobeying God because we prayed in public? No, that's not what he's really talking about. It means we don't pray for public acclaim. So we pray in public, but we don't do it for public acclaim. The heart behind prayer that Jesus is advocating here is to become conformed to the person we're praying to. Not the affections of the people who merely see us pray. So there are people in the pews here that will see you pray that could think something about what's going on in your heart based on what you're saying. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that's accurate and that's true. But who will know the intent of your heart is the one who actually sees your heart, which is God the Father. And his rewards will come from the intent of your heart that is seeking to pour out to him and pray to him and hear from him and confess to him. So he's looking at a radically re-engineered heart that goes before him uh, in prayer. And then we see verses 7 and 8, and he said, and when you pray, he just kind of adds to it. He said, in case you're not getting what I'm saying, he's saying, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do or the pagans do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. You ever had somebody say that to you, like a parent? Just don't be like that. I want you to be like this. Don't be like that. This is Jesus going, not that guy, that guy. Don't be like that. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. So what he's saying here is he's comparing what the prayers of his people might be if they're viewing how the prayers of these pagans would have been at that particular time. He was saying, look, you're, you're, the way you pray and the words you use, you're not conjuring up God. You know, he's not the dark lord of the underworld. You know, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, this is the way, this is the way that you pray in that it comes from something inside out, not outside in. And then he's saying, essentially, we also don't have to nag God in our prayers. 
I mean, some of you guys have to nag your spouse. You have to nag your kids. You, man, you just got to push them to just do. I mean, I've just asked you like 58 times to do that. You're just not, you're not doing it. And we feel like we have to nag people. And we're constantly pulling a rope on people. We don't have to nag God in our prayers. Multiplicity of words just doesn't manipulate God, is what he's saying. Because praying to God is something different. It's an intimate exchange with the one who formed you and knows what you need before you ask. I mean, does it ever occur to us that when we pray to God, that we're not supplying him with any new information? Right? Like, none of you guys are going to sit down with LBJ and go, you know, i got a few things to tell you about the game. You know, that's just not going to happen. We're not supplying God with new information when we pray to him. He knows what we need before we even ask. And just let that, we're going to get to the implications of that in a minute, but, but just let that rest on you. You're praying to somebody who knows the needs that you have before you even ask him. So what does that mean exactly? We're going to unpack that. Let's skip ahead, though. I want to skip ahead to verse 16. I want to get into fasting here. And this is what he says in verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. Then he says in verse 17, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So he has this theme about doing things not so others will see, but doing them so the Father sees, and he is the one that can judge the intent of your heart. So what he's saying here with fasting is he's saying clean up. You know, back then there was this idea of fasting where you would go into this state of mourning or you would, you would wear sackcloth, you put ashes on your head and it was, just this, it was just this very visible display that I'm going before the Lord, I'm fasting, I'm going without food. He's saying don't let anyone know you're even doing that. Don't let anyone know you're in a time of fasting. And what fasting really is, it's, it's an intentional act of prayerful focus for us um, you don't see a lot of fasting these days, but it's an intentional act of prayerful focus where we wait on the Lord and we allow his word to speak and to reveal to us, remind us of our dependence on him. And so what Jesus here is saying is it's just not a time to look pious in order to show people how righteous you are. So back then in that culture, it would have been something where people could have made much of that. And he's advocating, don't do that. Do it in secret. Do it as a heart that's coming quietly before the Lord, not loudly before people. And what he's talking about is religious hypocrisy. He's going back to religious hypocrisy because when we start practicing our righteousness and we do things like giving, when we do things like praying or fasting, it's really easy for us to get pats on the back when we do that. And so he's really saying, beware. Be careful of that. Maybe you look at these examples of hypocrisy given, and you think, man, I would never pray long prayers. I would never have a pained expression on my face when fasting, Ronnie. Well, you know, maybe that's true. But here's something to think about. If someone claims to be a follower of God, but let's just take prayer, for example, doesn't pray at all, are they any less hypocritical? Let's just take it into the context that we live in, Right? Because I just really doubt that any of you guys are going to, you know, grab that sign we got out in front that says, Welcome to Substance, stand on the corner and just start raising your hands and praying. 
like anytime soon. I just don't see that happening with any of you gents or ladies, right? So let's talk about what this might, how this might apply to us for today. If someone claims to be a follower of Christ but doesn't pray at all, are they any less hypocritical? Follow me on this. In other words, you're claiming to follow somebody that you never speak to. Is that not hypocritical? Is that not acting in a sense? Is that not just religion? Is that not just saying, yeah, I'm with him, but not being able to tell somebody the last time you actually spoke to him? Is that not hypocritical? Well, let's hold that and let's unpack this prayer where Jesus said, pray like this. Where he instructed us, he gave us a model for how to pray. And I'm going to read it again, picking up in verse 9, where Jesus says, pray then like this. And he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So in the first half of this prayer, we see this thought that Jesus lays out about what prayer is, which is giving glory to God. It's like that song we sang, those first two songs. Behold our God and glory to God alone. So he's giving us a model prayer here. He's not just saying pray this prayer only. Again, because that would go back to not being rote and repetitious. But he's saying, pray like this. Make sure that these elements are in your prayer. So he starts with our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Jesus was the first to make praying a personal discourse with God the Father. Because when a person has been adopted into God's family, they enjoy this privilege of addressing God as dad. And that's what's happening right here. John 1.12 says... But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Right? So what we're looking at here is that it's because we are in Christ, and Christ is in us, that we are able to come freely to God and address him as dad, as father. And it also allows us to see God as transcendent. When we address him, we all must always remember that he is above, and he is beyond the limitations that we have, the limitations of this world. So when we say Father, it speaks to the nearness of God. But then when we say in heaven, it points to his otherness. It points to the fact that we're serving and praying to a God that is not us, that is set apart. And then we move into hallowed be your name. And this speaks to God's holiness so we come before the Lord and we're speaking, we're acknowledging, we're committing our thoughts and our mind to God's holiness and perfection and the infinite gulf that exists between our sinfulness and his majesty. Because the name of God is an expression of who God is. And we have to come to him, we have to come to him with the honor and respect that is due only to him. I mean, we respect everybody, right? Right? I mean, God calls us to honor one another and to respect one another. But when we're talking about God, this is a different level of honor and respect when we plead our case before a transcendent God. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we impact this prayer, Christ now is sitting at the throne, at the right hand of God. He reigns as king over the entire universe. So we are to pray for the manifestation of Christ's reign and the emergence of his kingdom. 
So what this is, when we get to your kingdom come, your will be done, this is a petition. This is a prayer for obedience. That we will obey God's will as shown through his commands in scripture. And this is speaking to the authority and power of God. And that everything is subject to him. God made laws that we break on earth, but they're actually kept in heaven. So we pray in that way. And we acknowledge God's supremacy in heaven as it stands here on earth for us as God's people. You guys following me? Give us this day our daily bread. So we move from this high view of acknowledging God, of giving him glory, to coming down and saying, Lord, here are my needs. I have needs before you. God doesn't ignore our needs. He's a father. He knows what we need. So part of this prayer is give us this day our daily bread. God provides for our necessities. He doesn't always provide for our niceties, right? But he provides for our necessities. We remember from the Old Testament that God provided manna and bread for the Israelites. But what happened to them, man? Oh, man, they fell into grumbling and complaining. They forgot that it was God who provided food for them every day. They just forgot because they were taking it for granted. So they grumbled for what he didn't provide. Basically, they were saying, man, we need a steak sometime in our near future. Because all we're getting is bread and we're getting ready to go on a no-carb thing. Or I don't know what they were thinking in that time. But they complained. They forgot that God was providing for them, but they wanted something else. So we always want to consider God's provision. He just gives us everything that we need. If you don't have something, there's a good chance that it's not necessary for you right now. Right now. And then he says, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And so simply put, since we are saved by grace, what better evidence could there be of our salvation than what we offer to others the grace that we've received? And this is kind of a difficult and a dangerous part of the prayer because what Jesus is saying is that forgiven people forgive other people. Forgiven people forgive other people. So if we ask God to forgive us, like we've forgiven others, we need to take very seriously the grudges, the bitterness, and the unforgiveness that still is present in our lives towards one another. Because it's not something we want to be harboring. Because what we do when we are being, we're not forgiving another person, we're harboring bitterness, what's happening in that moment is we have just completely erased the reality that God forgave us of everything. And there ain't none of us that are going to have to forgive somebody of something as grievous as what Jesus had to forgive us of. Right? So what the passage is not saying is that God will only forgive us when we forgive others. It's saying because God has forgiven us, the most natural thing for us to do with that fixed in our minds and in our hearts is to extend forgiveness to our brothers and sisters. And then he goes finally into the prayer and he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And these are basically one in the same prayer. The book of James tells us that God does not tempt. He does not tempt to evil. He may test. He tests us, but he never tempts us. And so in this particular position here at the end, we ask for God's protection against the enemy and for his redemptive presence in our life. We plead with God. We say, God, here are my weaknesses 
Here are my temptations. Here are the places that for some reason my heart is drawn and I'm led down. And maybe that's you this morning. There are just things in your life that grip you. Well, you pray. You pray that God would prevent you from going down those paths of temptations. That he would deliver you from the current evil that he delivered from you on the cross once and for all in your life. So that's the model of the prayer that Jesus gave us. And you you see all the different aspects of it. And you see the different nuances of it. You see what it says in terms of God's glory and how it just appeals to our needs. And you also see some of the things that it doesn't say. I mean, the, the, the prayer says... The prayer says so much of this, but it's also missing some things um, that we're going to look into in a second here that, that sort of unsettle us. And then when we go into verse, six, uh, verse 14 here, he kind of doubles up on his point in verse 12 about forgiveness. He says, look, I want to make sure you understand this part of the prayer. For if you forgive, he says, others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses So Jesus goes back to his second point. Again, let's reiterate because he reiterated. He said forgiving others gives evidence of a heart that's been forgiven by God. Okay, here's the reality of what he's saying. You can't hold permanent bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart and claim to be a follower of Christ. That doesn't mean you don't struggle to forgive. All right, hear what I'm saying here, you guys. It doesn't mean you don't struggle to forgive. It means you do. It means you struggle to forgive. You struggle hard to forgive because of what Jesus suffered to provide forgiveness for you. Is forgiveness supposed to be easy? There's probably nobody in this room that doesn't have somebody that they have a bent against. I got like two people right now, I'd name them off by names, and then two of you guys would leave. I'm totally kidding, it's none of you. We were just talking about somebody this morning from our past, as we were driving up from Cleveland. We talked about this very thing. Is forgiveness supposed to be easy? No. We struggle to forgive. Is it supposed to come pain-free? No. Did it come pain-free for Jesus? Was his forgiveness simple and easy and pain-free? Was it not a struggle, what he did, to offer us the forgiveness that he gave us? No, it wasn't. So we need to think and we need to understand that forgiveness is something we struggle through and we fight for because of the bright, beaming light of forgiveness that is constantly just exposed on our own hearts. Amen? So here's some closing thoughts. And here's the question I want to address this morning for us. This is something that we could spend weeks unpacking. We're not going to spend weeks unpacking it, of course. So uh, there's a lot of nuances to how we pray and why we pray. I just want to touch on a couple of things as we close. And I want to address this question that if God knows what we need before we ask, Why pray? Why do we pray? Here's a short answer, and then we'll go into something a little bit more extensive. We don't pray to change God's mind. We don't pray to change God's mind. None of your prayers are going to change God's mind. 
We pray to be changed by God and become more like-minded with him. John Piper says, prayer is the open admission that without Christ, we can do nothing. It's an open admission to him about who we are before him. So why don't we pray? Why don't we pray? Why don't you pray? Why don't I pray? What's the, what's, what's the thing that holds us back, that keeps us back? Well, I think one of the things is results. We don't believe that prayer works because we don't see it as something that needs to produce an immediate and visible result. So we pray, nothing happens, and we think, therefore, in my just incredibly wise way of thinking, that must mean that prayer is ineffective. And here's the interesting thing. Sometimes God answers our prayers quickly, but then when he doesn't, we foolishly think he doesn't care about us, or that maybe he doesn't even exist. Or maybe some of you, like me, you kind of treat God like uh, Goasis. You treat him like a gas station. You know, I was filling up the tank this morning. We came from Cleveland down here early this morning. I filled up the, the, the gas tank. And, you know, until right now, man, I haven't even thought about that. I haven't even thought about the fact that I filled up that tank. And maybe that's some of you. You just fill up. You say a quick prayer. Prayer happens on Sunday, and you go. You're out. It's something you did. It's something you thought you should do. It's something you checked off a list. It's something that alleviated some guilt. It's something that allowed you to say, it's cool, big guy. I'm going to give you a little time right now. It's kind of like someone on a diet who eats one meal in the morning and then doesn't know why they're so hangry the rest of the day. Right? It's like, I don't know, I'm just so angry and irritable and I got a headache. Well, when did you last eat? Well, 10 hours ago. Oh, okay, that's interesting. But prayer is more like watering. It's a watering process. It's like watering a flower. It's like watering a garden. Nobody thinks, none of you think, I don't care how green-thumbed you are or not, none of you thinks that you only have to water something once. Because if you do that, it's going to wilt or it's never going to grow in the first place. Nor do you think that you're supposed to see it instantly grow right in front of your eyes. None of you think that. It's when you faithfully water it, do you notice how it remains healthy and that it grows and it holds the vibrancy of its color and you slowly see it grow or blossom into something it wasn't originally. So prayer is us becoming something that we weren't originally before we started praying. Does that make sense? What I think happens more often than that is that we treat God like Amazon Prime in a way. We find what we want, we add it to our cart, we choose our method of payment, we click order, and then expect to receive what we clicked on and paid for. We treat prayer like it's something we're paying God for, like it's something he owes us because that's what he asked us to do, we did it, we asked, where's the goods? But God actually gives us something he paid for, doesn't he? In prayer. You know, it's funny that we understand this so well with our kids. And I think even our kids understand it because they're kids. And so if you're a kid out there, you're probably getting hammered with this all the time. But I think our kids get this. And I think we understand it as we raise our kids. We want our kids to have good things, don't we? 
I mean, I wanted my daughter to have good things. I want her to have good things right now. I want her to have good and great things. But ultimately, we want them to trust us whether we give or withhold those good things, don't we? When we stomp our feet or we stop praying because God withholds something, we're saying that the gift then is more important than the giver. And it can be a good gift. It can be a good thing. But a good gift is never as good as the God who gives us the gift. Tim Keller said this amazing thing here. He said, listen, God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. This kind of shows our finiteness, doesn't it? It kind of goes back to the prayer that says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We're praying to somebody who knows something that we don't. You know, Melissa and I have prayed for something now for years that God hasn't granted. It's a good thing, too. It's something that we pray for multiple times during the day. God has never granted that thing. And it's a painful thing that he hasn't granted it to us. But he's granted something in us that's come through not granting that request. And it's painful. We're convinced that when we ask for something good and don't get it, it must mean God isn't good because he doesn't grant it immediately. It's faulty thinking of a father who has a mind that is incomprehensible to the people that he created with the minds he's given them. You guys follow me? We need to remember who God is when we pray. God is never acting out of weakness or inability or avoidance or mean-spiritedness or obliviousness. That's us. We think God is like us. We procrastinate. We put things off. We think that's how God must work. But a God who makes us wait doesn't make him less good. It means he's not the genie that we want him to be. I mean, have any of you ever made a wrong decision? Have you ever done something you thought would go right or make you happy or be the right thing and it turned out that you were wrong? I mean, literally everybody's hand should go up right now. It's insanity. None of you, yeah. Um, Our father, he can't do that. Think about this. Our father can't make a wrong decision for his children. So what we plead and pray for before the Lord, what we ask him to accomplish, the decision he makes, and by the way, when he says no, that's a decision. It's the right decision for us. And even though it might be incomprehensible to us in the moment, because it's something that we know he wants for us. I mean, some of you guys are praying for things that you are absolutely certain God wants because they're godly things. And that's true. What you are dealing with is an issue of timing and waiting and patience and growing in him. Because those things aren't going to happen unless you're made to wait and learning to abide in him. Which is what we keep reading, what we read that passage from John 15 last week, and we said it again today in our corporate reading. Our father can't make a wrong decision for his children. 
And what this prayer models for us is the glory and the joy that God wants growing and glowing in our lives. And we pray this way, what it ultimately does is it brings us back to Jesus. Jesus brings everything back to himself. This is a gospel-centered prayer. Praying like this, it reminds us that our ultimate need has been filled by the suffering of Jesus. Praying like this allows truth to be reinstated into our deceptive hearts. Praying like this calls out our sin. It calls us to righteousness. This was a prayer that Jesus, listen, this is a prayer that Jesus would fulfill. So Jesus is giving the disciples a prayer he would accomplish in the future that we now have in the present to pray as we move into our futures. When we pray like this, like he told us, like he assumed, when he said when you practice righteousness and you pray like this, what this does is it drives us back to Jesus. On the night of, listen how it does this. On the night of this death, Jesus cried out to his father. He said, Father, he called him by name. He said, Dad, he pleaded with him. And then he prays, he says, not my will. He goes, but your will. And then God denies his request. Jesus doesn't get his prayer answered the way he asked for it to be answered right then. And then what happens the next day is that he sacrifices his body on the cross. He gives us the daily and the eternal bread that we need for an eternal need. ...that needs to be met. And then on the cross, as his blood is being shed, he forgives us. And it gives us a model and a way and a heart for us to forgive others. And ultimately what we see when Jesus has risen again... ...is that he delivered us from all evil, all destruction. And he's leading us into glory. We pray how Jesus asked us to pray so that we become... More like Jesus. I mean, do we only want God to give us what we want? Is that why we hang around? Is that why we're his bro? God wants to replace and he wants to reshape your desires. I mean, this does, prayer doesn't deny that we have needs. It actually reminds us that our greatest need has been given to us in Jesus. Isn't a God who was good enough to grant us our greatest need, able to be trusted for all of our lesser ones. The heart of prayer is not what we're getting. It's who we're becoming. Praying like this, it does something to us. It deconstructs our desires and it reconstructs them into righteous ones. Righteous desires that bring ultimately a divine joy where we are more convinced of God's love and we have a greater desire to know him. That's what praying like this ultimately does for the one who claims to be a follower of Christ. Amen? You know, the part in the, the passage here where it says, give us this day our daily bread, it brings us back to what we're going to engage in this morning, which is, Communion, communion being how we remember the lengths that God went to make us righteous. How our unrighteousness was put on Jesus at the cross so that we could have peace with a righteous God who demands justice for sin. 
God gave us his body. He broke his body for us. He shed his blood for us. We remember the death of Jesus. We have unity with other believers who are remembering Christ's death. We anticipate the future that we have because when we eat that bread and we drink that cup, it reminds us that we now have unity and union with Jesus. And so Jesus gave us this symbol. He gave us this practice. And he said, do this as often as you remember me. Do this together as the church so that you remember me. I will be in your presence when you are doing it. And do it as a way to remember what happened on the cross and why it is that you now have peace with God. Remember the love that drove me to have union with you so that you wouldn't be destroyed by your sin. And that's what we're doing this morning. It's a great and glorious thing for us to do and to remember the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus. So I'm going to pray, and as I pray, the ushers and the Steiners are going to come up. Uh, they're going to pass out both elements so just hold both of those, and then we'll take them together at the end. Um, here's a couple of things for you to consider while the Steiners sing for us. Um, two things are meant to happen while we engage in communion. The first one is repentance. We want to go before the Lord. We want to cleanse our hearts before him. We want to repent of those things, of those nagging things that are still alive and troubling our hearts. These sins that are still at the core of our lives right now. We want to repent of those things that we can think of, that we can acknowledge, that we can know that God is not pleased with. But we don't just want to repent. We also want to reflect. We want to reflect on everything that God did to remove those sins. So this is not some big, bummer, solemn, ritualistic thing for us. This is something that we get to give glory to God for. This is a great thing. It's a celebratory thing for us, as well as being something that we, we meditate on and we quiet our hearts before the Lord in. So those are the two things, is repentance and reflection. And let your heart be taken in by those things and pray that the Lord would do some work in there. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you gave us something as effective as prayer to be what draws us near to you, to be the thing that reminds us of who you are, to be the thing that allows us to confess our sins before you so that we continue to be cleansed in your presence, to remember that in all things, Lord, you will accomplish your will. And not only that, but you're our father now. So you're our dad that loves us and you care about us. You care about those nagging details. You care about those things that keep just sapping our strength. You care about all of those things that are making us sad. You care about those things that we're grieving over. And Lord, you also give us such great blessings and great joy and great happinesses. When we look around and we can see such evidence of your grace in our lives. So prayer does all of those things, Lord. So thank you for giving us this way to grow and to glow in the good news of the gospel. Lord, help us to be men and women who pray. Help us to be a church that prays. 
that takes it seriously, that can witness the change that happens in our lives and in the lives of the people that we touch and in the community when we actually pray, when we come before you and we ask that your will be done. Lord, convict our hearts. And Lord, give us a time right now of repentance and reflection as we consider your grace to us and your mercy to us on the cross, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.